Surely you have noticed the explosion of these home renovation shows that our culture has become obsessed with. Uh, the, the, the drill is pretty simple. A young couple purchases a home that's helplessly outdated and run down, but the uh, HGTV renovation fairies sweep into town and um, within 30 or 60 minutes, depending on the show, the house is transformed into a dream home. And of course, all these shows end with the, uh, uh, the before and uh, after pictures, which are so satisfying. Um, I get way too much pleasure out of seeing a, a kitchen so ugly that the 60s wouldn't take it back, transformed into a, a room where I'm having to repent of, of covetousness. I'm like, I want that really badly. And this is the appeal of the shows. There's, there's something, um, there is something so satisfying to renovation. Um, nobody's going to watch the show New Construction on HGTV. I wonder what model home plan they're going to choose this week for the suburbs. We want to see something old and and ruined, transformed and restored. Where in the end, what you have is a home that strangely feels both old and new. The historical details are preserved and even celebrated as the centerpieces. But there is also an updated newness to the house. Features that we love that when the home was originally built, they couldn't even conceive of, but now are a part of and integrated into. Now, forgive me for over-spiritualizing your HGTV obsession, but I wonder if that satisfaction we find in that is an echo of Eden. I wonder if there is something inside of us that loves the idea of restoration because there's something inside of us that is pining after it, both in our lives and on a global scale. Have you ever noticed how obsessed the Bible is with re-words, redemption, restoration, restoration? Reconciliation, reconciliation, redemption, renewal, regeneration, and of course, resurrection, resurrection. That is a uniquely biblical concept. The reward of other religions and philosophies is always new construction. You leave this life and this world behind and escape to your newfound paradise somewhere else in the sky. Even the Eastern religions with their philosophy of, yes, reincarnation, but the reincarnation is still a process of moving up and out of this current existence into a spiritual state of nirvana. But not so with the scriptures. Here we see this glorious creation, ruined and devastated by the fall of man, but being restored by God until all things, all historical things are also made new. That is, the Bible tells the story of a restoration project, and this morning I want us to see that story in our place in it. 
I read three passages of scripture for us this morning, and each of them will serve as the foundation of my three points. And here they are. Culture designed, culture redeemed, and culture complete. Culture designed. Verse 27 of of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's design begins with this special creature created in his image. That is a creature that he shares attributes with in unique ways. A creature that loves like God loves. A creature that creates like God creates. A creature that is moral like God is moral. Um, Relational as the triune God is relational and, and on and on and on. We could go with these image bearer qualities. And then he tells the image bearers to populate his creation and in this way his creation will be flooded with his image and his glory. But it's much more than just have babies. It's much more than multiplication. He has a mandate for us as we multiply. Fill the earth, yes, and subdue it. And have dominion. Now, language like that, subdue, dominion, rule, these are words that we typically have negative connotations with, and understandably so, because dominion and rule in a sinful world always brings destruction. But in a perfect world, where image bearers subdue and rule according to the ways of our creator, dominion actually brings shalom. That is this vision of perfect creation flourishing. The design was God handing to us this unbridled creation teeming with glorious potential and give us this command, develop it. Unpack its wonder and its glory. Enjoy it. Be innovative. Invent. Order creation. Bring forth the majesty and beauty of creation. In other words, fill creation with culture. If there was never a rebellion and fall, we would not have just aimlessly walked around in the Garden of Eden. We would have developed the creation. Technology, art, business, music, entertainment, financial institutions, government institutions. We would have built cities. We would have lived in neighborhoods. We would have unpacked God's good creation. But we would have done so perfectly, reflecting the glory of our God. Reigning in this world according to the reign of God. In other words, we would have created culture, but our cultures would have perfectly honored God and blessed creation. Now, I know it's hard for us to conceptualize that because the fall is all we have ever known. But try to imagine all that we do now all of the wonderful, just glory of humanity stuff that we do now, but not corrupted by the stain of sin, not marred by the curse of creation. All the good of culture without the bad. That was God's design. But of course, we we messed it all up with the rebellion and the fall of man. 
and we re-ruined the design. And in response, God says to Adam, what we heard in our Old Testament reading, now cursed is the ground, creation. Cursed is creation because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. In other words, creation will feel the painful effects of our sin. It's not just man that becomes infected with sin, but the cultures of men as well. We still multiply and fill the earth, but we don't bring God's rain. We bring the rain of evil everywhere we go. We create culture, but now culture reflects and perpetuates evil, not good. Destruction, not shalom. And then we see shortly after it, immediately with Sodom and Gomorrah and on and on and on, the wickedness and destruction of cultures throughout the biblical narrative, which continues on to this day. Every culture throughout all of history, yes, even Western enlightened culture, bears the same shame, dishonors God, harms humanity, and destroys creation. But the creator of heaven and earth will not hand over his creation to the fall of man. He will have it back. He must have it back. Not just men, but the cultures of men. Not just spiritual souls, but the physical creation. He is the rightful ruler and owner of all things, and he wants it back. And so the cultural mandate project of God now becomes the cultural redemption project of God. As our conference was entitled, and my sermon is titled, Restoration Project. And so the storyline of scripture is the storyline of that redemption. And of course, the story culminates in the redeemer of redemption, Jesus Christ. We've seen culture design. Let's, let's fast forward to Jesus and see culture redeemed. Before we get to 1 Corinthians 15, let me just, let me just ask you this. Does it trouble you? Or, does, or um, do you, as just a good old uh, evangelical that, that, that loves you know, evangelism and discipleship and all these things that we so rightfully love, does it trouble you that G- Jesus didn't just come as an evangelist? That he doesn't just go around sharing the four spiritual laws with everybody he meets and that's kind of his mission on earth? Didn't it seem like his purpose is bigger than just saving some souls? Although, of course, Jesus came to save souls. He talked about this thing called the kingdom of God. A kingdom that he said was at hand with his coming. Now, the the language of kingdom evokes what? Rule, um, reign, dominion. And what does that hearken back to? The original mandate to subdue and have dominion. If we had not sinned, we would have filled the earth with the kingdom of God. With the reign of God. The rule of God. However, because we have rebelled, we have filled the earth with the kingdom of sin. But Jesus viewed his coming as an invasion of the kingdom of God. As a a re-entry of the rightful ruler. And then when you look at his life, what do you see play out? Everywhere he goes, 
the kingdom of darkness and sin is transformed into the kingdom of light and of God. He is like this oasis of redemption. Everywhere he goes, everybody that touches him, all things new. But the kingdom of this world then killed the kingdom of God. When they crucified the king, it was the apparent victory of sin's reign over creation. But what happened next, and we understand the significance of the cross, but when you get into the conversations like we're having this morning and we had all week in this conference, you got to understand the resurrection. What happened next is that the king of the kingdom of God surprised the kingdoms of this world by rising from the dead. And in this way, his death became not an end, but a beginning. They thought they were burying the kingdom of God, but they were actually planting the kingdom of God into this fallen creation. And what emerged from the grave was a sprout of new creation, the first day of a new world. The resurrection of Jesus is so important because what it does is it transforms Death, which remembers the original curse. If you sin, you're going to die. And that happened. What the resurrection did is it transforms the nature of death. You still have to die. The ultimate price of the fall is that the world is now filled with death. But even though we die, even though cultures die, even though nations die, everything dies... But what the resurrection does is it transforms the curse of death into a planting that yields a new harvest of a new creation. God tricked death by transforming death into its own death because now what goes to the grave rises to immortal new life. Now winter gives way to spring. That's Paul's point in our passage. 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on, the, it must put on immortality. That's why we got to go to the grave. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You don't hurt anymore, death. We're not scared of you anymore, death. Whether it be the death of my own body or the death of cultures or the death of creation, we're not scared of you anymore because now all you are doing, death, is putting an end to what is perishable that the imperishable might rise. The end to corrupt creation that an incorruptible creation might rise from the grave. Now, with that understanding of the resurrection... His closing application in verse 58 starts to make sense. It is so fascinating how he ends really the most robust teaching of the resurrection in all of Scripture. The whole thing ends with this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, on the surface, that seems like a surprising application, right? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? Oh, death, where is your sting? Therefore, I would expect a promise there. 
Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Or therefore, our hope is not in vain or anything like that. Instead, he says, get to work. (laughs) Because the resurrection is true, get to work. But it's not just any work. He says the work, what? Of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? The work he originally gave to us. Fill the earth and subdue it for his glory. So now our calling as Christian is to resubdue what belongs to our master Jesus, which is every square inch. How does Jesus speak of conversion? He uses rewords, right? A rebirth, born again. Or as theologians call it, regeneration. Paul says it like this if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The scriptures don't see the choice to follow Jesus as a change to our current life, but as death to an old life and the resurrection of a new creation. So that the Christian life is literally a taste of new creation. We are living embodiments of the world's destiny, of a redeemed world, and our lives are therefore re-subduing or renovating, renovating creation. You know, the thing about those renovation shows is that there is a lot left out, right? I mean, you do realize homes are not renovated in 30 minutes. Um, all we get to see is the before and after and some fun highlights with cute hosts smiling and hitting something. I don't think, and I'm not blaming the shows for that, because I don't think shows we would be as entertaining and popular if we followed the architects drawing up plans and the engineers evaluating structural issues and plumbers rerouting piping and getting permits from the local building officials. Does that sound like a fun show to you? I can't wait to see if the local government gives them the permit. But guess what? You don't get the all-satisfying after picture without the mundane, unseen labors of all those people. And brothers and sisters, that is our life. Mundane details of God's grand restoration project. Whatever your life, whatever your vocation, whatever your story, whatever your gifts, whatever you're calling, whatever you are doing, you are a witness to the reign and rule and kingdom of God. You do it according to the ways of the kingdom of God and in so doing, you resubdue this world for God. That's why virtue matters as an end in itself. We tend to think about obeying Jesus only as a means to something else. That is... I'm different in this world so that people will notice that I'm different and it'll give me the opportunity to share the gospel. Like our our virtue, living out the kingdom is, is a means to something better. But friends, obedience is glorious in itself. Because when you do business or art or education or babysitting or school or whatever you do according to the ways of Jesus then you are saying Jesus owns this sphere of creation. He is the ruler here. 
It doesn't matter what you're doing, but what you're doing matters. Now, let me play the cynic, okay? The natural critique is that this is all nothing but vaunted idealism. What, does what we do really matter? It makes for a great sermon, but come on. It doesn't matter. It never brings about any real and lasting change. Our brother from Scotland was here this week, and you know, he told us all the glorious stories of the Scottish Reformation, and then he told me about how John Knox's tomb is a parking spot now. Does it really matter? It's going to be forgotten. It's going to be lost. We aren't making any progress. This world isn't getting redeemed. If I do my calling for the glory of God, even if I gave my life away to it, somebody's going to take over and bury my efforts under a pile of sin and selfish gain, and it's going to be lost forever. But again, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, in light of the promised resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, now listen to this, cynics, your labor is not in vain. But it feels like it's in vain. But Paul says, no, it's not. It's not in vain, but it feels like it. No, it's not. But you have to be wrong, Paul, because life and work is going to be forgotten and probably undone. But Paul is saying, no, 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 you you don't understand. I just got done telling you about the resurrection of all things. Therefore, your work is not in vain. In light of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain, because when you rise, so shall your labors. Let's go to culture complete and end there. Then I saw, Revelation, verse one. When I, then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this is the end of the project, right? And at the end, it is a city of God invading his creation. Now that's an interesting twist. Because when we left off with the ruin, it was a garden of Eden, which is where we were when we screwed everything up and got kicked out. Now, as heaven returns to earth, it's a city, a new city. Where did that advancement come from? Well, that heavenly city unseen to the eyes of the world is being constructed as we speak through the labors of God's people. And at the consummation of all things, all that we have done will finally come to bear and have its full effect upon creation. This city is filled with the works of the hands of God's people. Let me try to explain it this way. Can we all agree that Jesus did some pretty amazing things during his life on earth? I think that's We'll say yes to that. Is it safe to say that that man had an impact on the world? Yes, I think that's safe to say. Well, do you know what everyone thought about the labors of his hand on dark, Friday, on dark Saturday when he was lying in the tomb? You know what they thought about that? Utter meaningless. All for nothing. Great man, great life, did some extraordinary things. 
dead, soon to be buried beneath the rubble of history. Well, do you know why he is not forgotten? Do you know why the significance, value, and power of his life and ministry carries on even to this day, in this morning, in this room, thousands of years later? Because he rose from the dead. You see, not only was Christ raised from the dead, but so were the faithful labors of his hands. Everything he did was given vindication and effect at the resurrection. And the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is the same will be true for you. Listen, I hope you accomplish great things for the Lord. I hope you make an impact that will be felt for a long, long time. But I want to tell you something. If the Lord doesn't return for a while, eventually your work and your life will be forgotten and your labors will be buried. But not forever. In the same way that the faithful labors of Jesus, which seemed to be utter meaningless at his death, were shown instead to be powerful and glorious at his resurrection, so shall it be for you. Everything you do in the name of Jesus here will find its ultimate fulfillment and significance at the resurrection of all things. The point of our future resurrection is that nothing will be forgotten. Everything you do will be raised. The story will be told. It will find its completion, its value, its significance. You will see the smallest labors contributing to the greatest of redemption. Your life is building the kingdom of God. Sometimes those results break through into this world. Now, sometimes they don't. But the hope of the, of, of the resurrection is that the labors of our life become the bricks and mortar of the resurrected Kentucky and it will be built by the service of your life. When we say that we exist for the good of the bluegrass, we are saying that when the world finally experience, experiences what it longs for, the glorious resurrection, that the indelible mark of this church and these lives will be all over the resurrected Kentucky. So the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that not one labor in the name of Jesus will ever be lost. Nothing is in vain. We long to see the effects now, and we rejoice when we see it, but we are guaranteed to see it when we rise, and there will be much rejoicing at the results of our labors. You're going to look around this glorious remade world and see your story told. And we're going to celebrate your story. We're going to marvel at your works in ways that we cannot fact. The impact will be felt. What we do with our lives matters because one day, not just our lives, but the deeds of our lives will be resurrected. Now, get to work. How inspiring, how empowering, how significant it is to realize that every labor in the name of Jesus will not be forgotten, but will be honored in the resurrection world. So, what do you have going on tomorrow? Another boring old Monday. Um, or an opportunity to add to the project. To redeem and reclaim your Monday, Monday, mundane Monday for the glory of the King. Whatever you do tomorrow, whether, whether it is the choice to be honest and virtuous at work. Or the courage to say no to pornography. 
or the opportunity to love someone that God's providence places in your path or, the, or to discipline or encourage your children, whatever you have to do on February 20, 2017 will echo in eternity. Your mundane day tomorrow will be celebrated in the resurrection and your labor is not in vain. Let me pray. Lord, as you prepare us now for your table, we remember that our labor is not in vain. And we feed ourselves now with your labor, which is not in vain. Because you are risen, we still gather around this table and proclaim your body and your blood. And Lord, when we feast one day in the house of Zion, when we gather to share the stories of redemption, not one thing we have done for you will be forgotten. Encourage us, encourage us with that truth. Fill us with this meal and send us forth to labor in your name. Through Christ we pray, amen.